The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome Simon Bird to this week's episode. Simon is the CEO and co-founder at Revlifter, and their vision is to make every online deal intelligent. They combine AI, hyper-personalization, algorithms, and cutting-edge UX to enable retailers to personalize their online offers. Revlift raised their Series A from a couple of VCs, Gresham House Ventures and Maven Capital Partners. And they've rapidly scaled to 10 million ARR. They've sold to online businesses of all shapes and sizes, including blue chips. I'm sure everyone will have heard of the likes of New Balance. Harvey Nichols, Staples, and AT&T. Uh, Revlifter even won a global marketing award for a campaign they ran with a division of Carphone Warehouse. So, uh, Simon, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode. Thanks for having me, Gary. How did you meet your co-founder and what inspired the two of you to launch Revlifter? I uh, met my co-founder, uh, Ryan Klizat probably about six years ago, I just got to know him because we were both interested in a subject around how to track online to offline. So how to track consumers that are shopping online into stores. That was a common interest of ours. And we became friends about uh, six years ago. And uh, about four years ago, or four and a half years ago, I had the the idea behind Revlifter, which, uh, which I had in my kitchen about four or four and a half years ago, which ultimately through a conversation at a pub and, and a napkin, uh, ended up resulting in uh, in the business. So uh, um, that's that's you know I suppose it was went from a, a friendship to to a business relationship, having known him for a couple of years. So which pub and was it an actual napkin or is that one of those <laughs> that one of those stories that people people create to make it sound more kind of romantic and uh, theatrical than it really was? So it was at the American Sports and Grill in Farringdon. And I think actually it was a, it was a napkin, it really was. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm not making up, but I'm not sure whether it was, yeah, we kind of regret having not taken a photo of that uh, a few years ago, but uh, it really did start that way and um, ended up being a terrific night. But um, I suppose, you know, he gave me the confidence uh, at the time to to, to leave the day job, uh, so to speak. He he built a couple of businesses before. And um, then after that, we decided of, of the division of labor and, you know, who'd be doing what. Now, with the shift to online, I assume that the pandemic has overall acted as a pretty strong tailwind for Revlifter. Even so, I'm keen to hear how, as a business, but also as a team, you've been impacted by the pandemic. Yeah, great question. So so basically, uh, early 2020, uh, we, we were embarking on uh, the sort of Series A uh, project, so to speak, and we had about 20 or so staff back then. And business was was good, um, but it wasn't anything like what we were to you know find out later on in 2020 and indeed now. So so basically, uh, in sort of January February 2020, we'd just come back from San Francisco. Ryan and I we were starting those Series A conversations, and and lo and behold, the you know the the COVID broke out, and um, both Ryan and I actually had it quite badly. And um, you know, raising money whilst having COVID, uh, you know, was, was was pretty difficult. But but what had happened during that time, for February, sort of March, April, twenty twenty, was that retailers began to start pausing their budgets, and so we thought this is just going to end badly. 
So it's, we ended up going into kind of protection mode and we ended up using the government's furlough scheme and, you know, reducing staff counts and that kind of thing, almost preparing for the worst. But, but what actually ended up happening, Gary, is that the business trebled overnight. So suddenly, you know, with consumers both in, in America and the UK being asked to stay at home, you know, panic buying struck and people started to buy a lot more things. They started to, to bulk buy and our business trebled. So we're working with businesses like the Hut Group where people were buying a lot more sort of protein, um, all sorts of different items and uh, the business flew. So, you know, the results in uh, 2020 saw the business treble compared to 2019 and, and last year it continued. Um, it continued to be a very, very strong year. I'm now seeing signs that perhaps that double digit or treble digit growth is slowing. But I think a lot of people are reporting the same thing. But the good news is it seems like online shopping is here to stay. And with the pace of growth you've been seeing, I'm intrigued. Why has there been so little innovation in your niche of the market? Why is nobody out there copying your approach or, or shall we say, plagiarizing some of your ideas? Well, we might be inspiring businesses like that at the moment. I just don't know. <laughs> I haven't seen evidence of it yet. But but ultimately, the best way to frame what Revlifter is about, so I might just talk briefly to, to where it all started. So basically, what I was doing when I had the idea behind Revlifter, I was running voucher code or coupon websites all around the world. And what I noticed in that particular space is that consumers, you and I, if we want to deal, what often inspires that is you go to a, a website like you know JD Sports, you add something to the cart, you see a coupon or a voucher code box. And of course, quite often you want one, right? You want to get a, a, a great deal. So what tends to happen is consumers then leave JD Sports or whoever it is for two minutes. You do that crazy two-minute search where you're typing in JD Sports discount codes, et cetera, into Google. Often you can't find a deal that works or is relevant. So what you end up doing is you abandon your search, you go back and you probably buy what you're going to buy anyway. Basically, you know, through the affiliate marketing rails, which is what we use to, to do that part of the business, typically the retailer ends up paying for a sale that might have happened anyway. The consumers had a poor experience and, and ultimately it's just not a great consumer experience. And, and that's kind of where we started Revlifter. We, we started with the idea behind, well, why don't we build a retailer their own coupon page or voucher code page that lives in search when a consumer is looking for a deal? But the twist is, as a consumer is opening up the official, I don't know, Curry's discount code page or something, in real time, we personalize all the deals and offers because that deals and offers page is connected with the retailer's website. So we can see, for example, Gary, that you might be buying a washing machine. We might say in real time, why don't you spend an extra 50 pounds or buy a washing machine and a dryer and in return, we'll give you a better deal. So ultimately what it's doing is it's driving up the order value. The consumer feels like they're winning and everyone's winning. So that kind of stems down to, you know, personalizing deals in real time or making deals intelligent to your, you know, introduction, Gary. And that's ultimately what we're doing as a business. And the business has continued on from personalizing offers pages to personalizing offers across the retailer's website. So we personalize offers on a retailer's cart, on their product pages and other user experiences. But our overall ambition behind Revlifter is to personalize offers across the entire omni-channel user journey. And to go to answer your question that you originally asked, no one seems to be approaching deals and offers that way in the marketplace. So, so we are we actually see ourselves as almost creating a subsector of personalization, which is focusing on, on the perfect deal and offer to show that consumer 
in that micro moment to create an incremental result. So whether that incremental result might be winning a new customer or getting someone to buy you know, an extra 50 pounds worth or whatever it may be, no one's solving that particular problem. Now, obviously, the States is an important market for you. Now accounts for over 60% of your revenue and coupons have always been such a huge part of the culture over there in the States. But you did have some challenges gaining a foothold in the States, a couple of failed launches. So what have you learned? What works and what doesn't work when a European software venture is targeting the US market? That's a great question. I mean, uh, you know, and obviously it's a, it's evolved since COVID. So, you know, um, I think that's changed the landscape a little bit. But, um, yeah, uh, you know, so over 60% of our business, you're right, is in, in America. And the Americans, you know, did grow up or do growing cutting coupons out of newspapers. So, therefore, you know, getting a great deal in America, you know, is a dumb thing. Our kind of launch into America has very much been helped with the fact that these affiliate marketing networks we partner with, you know, tend to be global networks and that sort of carried our name from from being in the UK over you know into America so so I, I guess we've had the unfair advantage of having kind of partnerships ready-made partnerships uh, in the ground to help us you know give us that soft landing but over the time we've been running the business in the last you know four years we, we have looked to you know hire people on the ground and that has happened but because you know with COVID particular we haven't been able to fly over there as much and you know spend time culturally with the employees or have them fly back those employees you know didn't work out but now that uh, the restrictions are easing with COVID in particular we, we are planning to put you know more boots on the ground in sort of April May time this year and we now have the level of you know scale in our business to probably be seen as a you know a very attractive place to work because ultimately that's what you're doing right you're, you're competing against the you know the domestic uh, employees as well regulators are pushing really hard to tighten the rules on data privacy advertising apple recently changed their privacy rules as well and that has hit facebook especially hard do you face any regulatory headwinds I mean, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, the internet in general is changing. I'll start up with saying this, that, you know, obviously third-party cookies, many of you are aware of, you know, going away. That they're, and so therefore, the challenge for, you know, MarTech or e-commerce providers like us and indeed other providers is that, you know, can your business run, you know, cookie-less? Can you run server-to-server type solutions, that kind of thing? And we've very much built our business, you know, from day one with that in mind. On top of that, um, there's also legislation around obviously in Europe, you know, GDPR in America, there are all sorts of GDPR-esque style regulations of which, you know, California tends to have the toughest, but many other states are following suit. There are slight variations in how the Americans approach it versus the Europeans. And we've, we've tried to stay on top of that using attorneys in America that specialize in, in actually worldwide privacy and regulations, making sure that you, you know, you, you approach that all the right way. But in the UK, we've used a company called um, Bulletproof, who have been terrific in, in helping ensure that we are on a pathway, continuous path, pathway to improve our GDPR positioning, because it is, you never kind of arrive at the end destination. It's, a, it's an ongoing journey, which then might eventually lead to achieving like ISO standards and, and a higher level of um, regulatory framework, which we are very much on a pathway towards as well. So that tends to be how we think about doing that. And we are also very much 
aiming to continue to be a data processor, you know, not a data controller. When you're when you become a data controller, then obviously it's a whole new world of um, regulations and standards. And so we are, we're aiming to not necessarily collect personally identifiable information. We very much want to work with the data controllers, which in our case are other retailers, to make sure that we, we leverage what they have in a, and we're only processing data, not collecting data. And how do you see the e-commerce market generally evolving over the next three to four years? And, and how are you positioning Revlifter for these for these changes? Obviously, it goes without saying, you know, e-commerce is going to continue to grow rapidly. And ultimately, I think um, our strategy in order to leverage that growth is, uh, is, is twofold. So it's kind of what can we do ourselves in, in, in what we service retailers directly in our direct relationship with them, but also who do we dance with in, in the greater world of, of e-commerce? And, you know, we're not trying to compete against the likes of, you know, Salesforce or Adobe or those sorts of platforms. It's about who do you dance with? So how do you work with retailers that are already using these platforms and, and do more of an ecosystem? And, you know, this sort of thinking also about kind of like what is your go-to market strategy as well um, when it comes to winning business from, you know, the said e-commerce retailers. So thinking about other environments where they tend to buy technologies like us, such as Shopify or Magento or those sorts of players as well. So that that's how we're currently thinking about the world of e-commerce and how that's growing. And then obviously there are all sorts of other things going on like, you know, Web3 and the metaverse and things like that. So it's just, you know, it's keeping an eye on those things, but I, but I think they, they're going to take a while to shake out if indeed they do at all because some some of it's pure, you know, hype as well. So it's kind of like... <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you whether you whether you actually believe in the metaverse or whether you think it's just an interesting um, tagline that people are using. Yeah, it's fascinating. And obviously, you know, Meta, Facebook have, you know, pinned a lot of their hopes on, on that evolving. And I think there is definitely something there. But um, as to whether it actually properly develops and who's to say, but um, at the moment, I'm, I'm being sceptical. I think at the moment, Web2 works, you know, pretty well. And so, so therefore, it's about making the most of, uh, you know, today's current landscape. And is your longer term vision or aspiration to stay independent, maybe get a, a an IPO either in the states or or in the UK, or are you more likely going down the route of let's find a strategic investor or a strategic you know, acquirer? I think at the moment it's you know we're all enjoying running the business. I think it's just and we've got very you know patient uh, investors that are, are very happy with the growth we're showing. I mean, you know, trebling or doubling every year is is great, but ultimately it's about you know, shareholder value. And, but as to where that could go, um, it, you know, it could be that, you know, one day we, we decide to, to float on a, on a local stock market, or it could be that um, there's a trade sale. We're, we're not sure, but at the moment, it's just about, you know, capturing as much landscape as possible. And I think, you know, we are ahead of the curve in terms of what we do. It's about defending that and being seen as number one. And then, but ultimately, if you create enough value, then yes, someone might come along and decide to, you know, make a play on you, or it could be that we go down the, the, the route of doing a roll-up and acquiring other other businesses. We haven't quite wedded our way, so to speak, but, um, you know, at the moment we're all just enjoying running the business. From a cultural perspective, as you expand, especially internationally, what are you doing to ensure that your cultural norms and your values are rolled out, especially in a substantially 
virtual world that we're that we're all living in. You know, we, we've talked previously about a part of my background, which uh, is human resources. And um, uh, many years ago, I studied it. Um, I was involved in psychometric testing and recruitment. And I think, you know, the reason why I cite that, Gary, is that I think that's kind of where it starts. It's about who you hire in the business in the first place. And my kind of personal framework is kind of three pillars. So can do, will do, and will fit. So will fit uh, is to do with the culture of the business. So are you hiring people that are in line with the culture of the business now and kind of where you see that going. Can do is to do with the candidate's experience and, and their intelligence. And then will do is, uh, is to do with someone's motivation, personal motivation, how hard they're going to fight for you every day. And I tend to kind of weight it at sort of 25%, can do 25%, will do, and 50% will fit because you can hire people that can do and will do, but if they don't fit, it never works out. So, so we're very much started the business with that kind of mentality in mind, and 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 I was um, in, in my uh, job before this, um, I was running, you know, as mentioned, coupon sites around the world. It was owned by an American business, and I absolutely fell in love with the Los Angeles culture because that's where their head off, head office was, and it really was kind of like where what you liked the office, and dogs are okay in the office, and you know, work hard, play hard type mentality, and I, I love that style because I think. I would also say not, not don't micromanage people as well. It's like if you're going to hire people, they should really be telling you what to do rather than the other way around. So, so I think I think that's the way I sort of see it going. And in terms of how that maintains internationally, you know, I think it's very much you know high, you know the, the the very best evangelists of our culture and you know in the UK, let's move those people if they if they want to move over to America and and kernel that kind of attitude over in other markets. And then I think it's simply about regular communication, open style in management and collaboration. I think that just helps and fosters culture as well. So I don't think there's there's a, you know, there's an absolute recipe for doing it, but but that's the way I've always done it. And I think that tends to allow you to attract the right people to begin with and then keep those people in the business long term. That's how I think about it. So we should expect to see t-shirts, shorts, flip-flops <laughs> and poodles in, in the typical Revlifter team meeting. Yeah, and barbecues as well. There's, there's always room for a good barbecue, especially given, you know, I'm, a, I'm from Australia. But um, yeah, that's, that's, that's right, Gary. Oh, I'm tempted now with the idea of the barbecue as well. Now you got me, especially if if we can have a bit of um, a few prawns and, and, and shrimps and things <laughs> on, on the barbie. Who's inspired you? In terms of the business world, in terms of other entrepreneurs or, or business thinkers, whose ideas, whose approaches, whose successes have really inspired you to be who you are? Oh, it's a really good question. I mean, I mean, I, I guess w- when I was much younger, I, I was very inspired by um, Richard Branson. I kind of, you know, read a lot of his books, and I, I thought he was terrific. And but I guess you know, the, the part of my personal journey in setting up a business. First of all, I'll say I've always been what I consider a, a, a entrepreneur. And the reason why I say that is that uh, I've been very entrepreneurial in spirit, but I think until you do it, put all everything you know, on the line yourself, you're not real. I don't think you can really call yourself an entrepreneur. And that's, that, that was always my goal. And so, so prior to the age of something like 38, I was, I was always sort of working for someone else or you know, helping them grow and had an opportunity to invest in other businesses as well. And the reason why I did invest in those other businesses, um, many of which are doing very, very well today, is because I wanted to get to know those entrepreneurs and learn the, the good, the bad, the ugly. And, and, and often I sat on their boards or for one of them, I, I was even their chairman. 
that kind of inspired me to, to then set up my, my own business and gave me the confidence to do that because my goal was always to set up my own business by age 40 and I'm, you know, 43 now. And so I would say the people I've learned the most of, both good and bad, are the people that I've invested in. And those entrepreneurs are phenomenal people. And, you know, I'd say out of the seven businesses I've invested in, a couple didn't quite work out. But you know what? I think I learned more from those <laughs> businesses and the ones that have done really well. So I think that's what I would cite as the people that I've invested in are the ones that I've learned the most about because I've had more, you know, close action. I think often when you read about an entrepreneur in a book or something, it's a gloss view of the world. And, and I'm not totally convinced by it, but you can still learn from it. But I think, you know, being close to the action is, you know, where I always like to be. So you've actually learned from direct observation of other entrepreneurs' successes and equally importantly, their, their failures. That's uh, an interesting way of looking at things. And of course, most people do it the other way around. I mean, they become an entrepreneur and then they start investing. So for you to go and invest in startups and then eventually become an entrepreneur is an interesting reversal of the usual path. What was behind that strategy? I mean, did you did you literally plan it out thinking if I invest in some companies, I'll learn and then I'll I'll be a better entrepreneur myself eventually? Or did it just pan out that way? I did. You know, with a couple of businesses I I, I worked for, I, I you know, I had shares in those businesses, I came into some money. And to be honest with you, that coincided uh, with the UK uh, with the you know SEIS and EIS tax relief programs where I was thought, well, hang on, I've got a capital gains bill. I, I probably need to do something with it. There's a, um, I can't remember the name of the um, incubator, but there was a local incubator in um, Farringdon that I, that I heard about um, in London. And I got involved and I wanted to invest in startups and see how that all went. And, and that's honestly where it, where it started. And, and, and it really was for me to invest in those businesses with a view of doing it myself, because I didn't know where to start otherwise. And so, you know, I end up invest. I only really invest in businesses that I understand or I can add value. So, part of those agreements, I always, you know, ask for a little bit of sweat equity and, you know, ideally a board seat as well, where I can help them on their journey. And I've and I've done that for a few companies now. And it's worked out really well. So I would say yes. I, I did deliberately go and do it in that order, and it's kind of worked for me. And when you're scaling a business rapidly, scaling you know two x three x in terms of your annual ARR. You have to deal with a huge amount of stress from customers, investors, employees, partners. Do you ever find time to truly switch off and relax? So sometimes is the, is the truthful answer. Last year, I had a bit of a health scare, which got me thinking about my lifestyle. And uh, I really was, you know, perhaps early, as early as early last year, I was doing, I was still doing 16 hours a day, you know, sort of sitting at my, my desk and to the point where some days I actually had a knee lock. I couldn't actually bend my legs. I couldn't walk properly. Since then, I've, you know, I've invested in a couple of things. I've got one of those sort of electric stand-up desks, which forces me to stand up a bit more a day. But, but obviously, as I've expanded the core team as well, I've, you know, I've, I've let go of the business a bit more, which, is, which, to be honest, it was really hard, like, especially you know, as I was looking after the sales department, for example, letting go of that kind of baby, so to speak, has been really difficult. But also, I've decided to move out of London. So that was my big decision last year. I, I moved to the coast. And from a lifestyle perspective, and especially, we, you know, we're one of those families that got a, a lockdown dog. We go to the beach a lot more. And so that has been life-changing for me. And I go to London two or three days a week. 
that's kind of like how I feel like I get a little bit more of, you know, me time and I, and I can load balance. Cause when you, if you think about it in the old world, when you're going to work every day, you're sort of burning two, maybe three hours a day on travel. These days I can build in, you know, a bit of exercise or, you know, time with the family, whatever. And that takes the stress away. So it's, I think to answer your question, you know, in summary, it's a combination of letting go and, and trusting your team, which I have done but also forcing myself to be out of London, which I think is a bit of a rat race and focusing a bit more on where I live and, 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 you know, and what I'm doing with my life. I've learned basically advice from podcast guests I've had on like at Bradfield. I've learned the value of digital detox, which I try to do almost every weekend. Now it's not easy, but uh, I certainly try. And more recently this calendar year, actually, I've learned how to meditate. It's been a real pleasure getting to to know you on the podcast today. I wish you and the whole team at Revlift a huge success, and I'll be watching with interest how your US expansion adds to the top line and the bottom line over the next um, two or three years. Thanks very much, Gary. Appreciate the opportunity. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.